seems like it seems like I've been gone a long time, but it's I've been gone off and on for the whole month, just kind of coming and going. So it's really good to be back. With nowhere to go, nothing to do, no place to go for a while. Um, you know what I have to start talking about again now that I'm back? <laughs> Todd's nodding his head like this. <laughs> In October, we have our precept ceremony. So, uh, we have to get back on track with that. You've had too many, like, beautiful talks by people and this on other beautiful things. Now we have to get back to the work, the work part. We have a lot of people signed up for the precepts, so we, we don't even, we're not even looking for numbers anymore. We're just looking for, uh, deeper understanding and, and rec- recognizing what an opportunity it is for us to, um, to have the precepts, to have the Buddhist teachings, to, to offer us such an open, open-hearted way to look at this path as a spiritual path. So um, who can tell me the five precepts? Because I know some of you are on the list. <laughs> Dave? The thoughts uh, refrain from killing, refrain from stealing. Wonderful. And in order. <laughs> so those are the five basic precepts. Could everyone hear them? You've got a nice voice. Um, so the five basic precepts, and when we take those five precepts, we always began by taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And at the retreat that I was uh, helping other people lead this past week. And it was mostly, there were, you know, we had at least five Buddhists in the room, but a lot of Catholic nuns and a lot of lay people who were interested in Buddhism, but had uh, were, you know, from different faith traditions. So uh, I realized, I just take for granted that we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. That's I, I remember back when I took the precepts the first time with the Tibetan teacher, the first pre, the first thing you do is take refuge. I mean, the precepts weren't even talked about. It was taking refuge. And so that question came up. Several people were curious about what it means when we say take refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. And so... I think we can, once we've done that, that in the Buddhist world, when you take refuge there, that really means if you want to put a label on what you are, you're a Buddhist. And uh, the, the whole label thing is always a big question. We don't want to be labeled as a Buddhist because none of us believe or feel or act the same way. So we all are interpreting even the teach, if, even if we're studying the direct teachings of the Buddha that we have, and that's what we call the Pali Canon, or as direct as they can be. We know they've been altered a lot over the centuries. But even when we study those suttas, we all come away with a different sense of what was the key point or what we actually got out of it. 
uh, no matter how many commentaries or teachers we listen to, we all come away with a different take on it, which is a good thing, because we're all living our we're all living our unique lives, so we know what's what's relevant to us and what we're not ready to hear or don't agree with or see as being something added uh, that's not as essential as we want our teachings to be. That's good. That's a good kind of student to be. But when we take, so when we take refuge even, and uh, if you, anybody who's from a, a Asian country will say, once you take refuge, then you can call yourself a Buddhist. We battle with that. We don't like that. We don't like labels in this country. So we have Jewish Buddhist and Christian Buddhist and Catholic Buddhist, and uh, you know we have every flavor of being a Buddhist. We have Tibetan, Mahayana, Chan, Zen. You know we can go on and on, and that's how it's going to be in America for a long, long time. Now I've just been reading in the last few days, and actually met someone in a group that calls their modern Buddhist. And uh, there's a Tibetan center in Madison that the person who was at the retreat who's, who goes to this, uh, it used to be called the teacher's name, or a Tibetan temple, a center, meditation center. And she was telling me yesterday, now they keep changing the name because they're trying to figure out how to be uh, appeal more and more to Western people and not be alienating and not be political. So it's they're calling it now Modern Buddhist Meditation Center. And I had just been reading an artic- article or an essay from Tricycle about modern Buddhism, so I was really excited about it. So modern Buddhism is just trying to strip away, s- strip away all of the... Uh, stuff that's been hooked on to Buddhism in all the different cultures and all the different political environments, just strip it down to uh, basically the teachings of the Buddha, sounds like to me, which, by the way, is what the Theravadans try to do. <laughs> so we, have a, we do have a lot of Sri Lankan culture stuck on ours, and it's, it's pretty minimal. If you had, if we have a lot of Sri Lankan people here, they would laugh if I said we're we are, you know, like Sri Lankan Buddhism. They see a little bit of Sri Lankan Buddhism here, but just in the way we do our ceremonies, or just in the way we do our big festivals. But um, so modern, I think Theravadans, which we think of ourselves, we're we're called by Mahayana Buddhists often we're called old Buddhism or given the Hinayana, which is not a politically correct term anymore, so modern Buddhism wouldn't even use that. But that's supposed to be, that's the Buddhism of the elders, the teeth of the elders, or the old people. And uh, it's, the, it's the lesser vehicle compared to the greater vehicle, which is what, when I first became a Buddhist, those were the terms people were using. And I kept thinking, this is, but this is Buddhism. How can you have a greater vessel and a, and a lesser vessel? But I was with the, I was with the greater vessel teachings. <laughs> so I thought, I don't know anything about the lower vessel, so maybe I should stay away from it. Um, then I became one. But I think, uh, I love the term modern Buddhism. It's, it's really an, an approach to how do we make Buddhism uh, 
open and accessible to Westerners, I think is what it's talking about. And I think, I think the easiest way to do that is to go right back to the Pali Canon and, and try to soak up the teachings of the Buddha. What did the Buddha say? What did the Buddha talk about? He didn't talk about whether there's a God or not. He said, don't waste your time doing that. So I remember the first thing I thought I had to debate when I became a Buddhist, because I'm dealing with a fundamentalist mother, right? So I thought I had to be able to argue against the existence of a God. Like, that's, that's what I thought I had to prove to people. Because in my head, when I became a Buddhist, it was like, here's some relief. We don't have to... We don't have to be dealing with a whose God is right and who, because that's the way I had been raised. Like there is, there's like, this is the God who's right. And the way everybody else see God is not right. So when I became a Buddhist, I thought I had to be able to defend basically an atheist position. And, and that's just completely not the way the Buddha taught. The Buddha said, you know, life is short. We're working with ourselves right now, how to live in this moment, how to be happy, how to be kind, how to do no harm, how to live a life that, how to live a life that's so kind and so harmless and so uh, pure that we can sit down and meditate and achieve our own enlightenment and achieve and develop wisdom within ourselves. So, we don't need to be taking on uh, ways to argue about is there a God or not, and how how did the world begin? How did the how will the world end? He just said these are. This, I'm not saying that there is a God or isn't a God, or I'm, and I'm not saying that there's the world maybe began at a certain point and maybe it will end at a certain point. He said these are not things we can do anything except speculate about. These are beyond what we, what is important in our lives, which really reduces everything down to, we don't have to argue about that. I never needed to try to prove to my mother, which, I mean, I really thought, if I can just say it right, she'll understand, which is, is that's never happened. I've never said it right. <laughs> I would have saved years of discussions that I just thought, oh no, she's going to bring that up again. Because I thought I had to defend some position. I never had to defend a position. It never needed to be defended. And I never had to take a position. That's what I realized finally after years, when I really began to study what the Buddha taught, what he said. There's no position that has to be defended. I can just, and now I can be with my mom, and if she starts asking me, you know, about this thing that I do, I can just say, Mom, let's just have a wonderful time right now. We don't even need to talk about that. It means you can't hear, so it's, you know, it's really not me talking, it's me having to listen. So, but I can just say, let's just be happy with each other. I mean, she's 95. We don't have an endless amount of time to debate. It's like, why would we both start speculating about it? I'm lucky she's alive at 95. And if, if she had died earlier, we would have ended both, we would have, her life would have ended with us debating about the existence of God. 
if, if it had been too soon before I recognized that I, had, I was misunderstanding the teachings. So the, the Buddha was focused on, let's make this life just one that we, we die in peace. We die feeling no regrets, no remorse. And that's, live the best life we can live. And do, like my first teacher said, just do a little better every day. Be a little kinder every day. We're going to have a bad day. We're not going to feel like we've been very kind. But then the next day we can be kinder. We can smile more. We can appreciate someone. We can help someone. We can take care of someone. So that's what we're working hard to do because then what we may have thought of as salvation, but then our awakening comes from within us. And so I think the Buddha was trying to get us to see these other things might be very interesting if you like to debate, if you like to hang on and cling to a point of view. Because if that point of view ever starts to change, you don't want to be in that debate anymore. You don't want to be holding on to a position that you can't sustain. So we cling to those, those points of view sometimes the same way we cling to life, to people, to possessions. So when we let those go and we have no point of view to defend, just think of how lovely that would feel if you dropped every single point of view. Political. I mean, we wouldn't become zombies, really. We would be able to listen we would be able to make our own decisions about things without having to be attached to uh, convincing others that we were right or our side of the issue was better than theirs. We spend so much of our time doing that instead of making our world a little bit better for us, and that means for also for the people around us. And I think the, 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 uh, the precepts are a beautiful example of that. The precepts only talk about what we do to purify ourselves. And those are things that we can take as our training guidelines. They're things we can take as, um, you know, you might be, you may not have a temple to go to. And I realize every time I'm with a bunch of other people, they don't have anything like a blue lotus to go to. You know, that's, they, they're practicing on their own. So if they're working with the five precepts, those become, I think, even more, without a sangha, those become even more important touchstones. Because it's, we're more aware of it when we're, when we have a sangha, because we're all, we're all working with those things. And we're working with them at all different kinds of levels. So in a, in a big sangha, we, we see. So, Somebody might just be struggling with, um, I don't know, just not having, not having a temptation to take things from the office, like, a, like erasers or, you know, paper or using the copy machine. So that may be, that may be what their issue is, just uh, what does it mean not to, not to steal, not to take, take things that don't belong to us. And somebody else might be working on wanting to, they take the first precept to not to harm, not to kill. Maybe they're working on, okay, does that mean I, I need to be, a, I need to be, we don't need to be anything. 
does that mean I want to be a vegetarian? Or is it okay to eat meat? Or is it okay to kill mosquitoes? I mean, we're all working on that at all different levels. And, and so in a bigger sangha, we see that. And it's perfectly okay. So we see that, okay, not everybody is working on these things at these super subtle levels. And um, I had talked about when we look at the precepts, it's really important. And I think sometimes even reading Thich Nhat Hanh's book on the precepts, um, I mean, you're, we need to save the world. We need to be thinking globally. But I think, I think the way the Buddha wanted us to take those precepts to begin with is don't look at the whole world. We cannot save the whole world. First, we need to see if we can live by those precepts. And we see it in the most subtle ways for ourselves. But we don't need to get distressed about how we are personally causing global warming or um, the extinction of species that we really adore and love to see flyers about or posters of. We can get obsessed with that. But what we need to do is take it, bring it back. Just bring it back. How am I living today? Am I trying to be harmless, to do no harm to anybody? I'm going to walk on bugs. If I build a house or a garden, I'm killing living things to produce things that we think it's safe to eat. Like if you're a vegetarian, we're still killing things to get, to get the produce we want to eat. So we have so many personal decisions to make. We can get caught up in that without ever thinking beyond our house or our yard. So we have to learn what we have to let go of and what's important to us. So maybe you're trying to figure out if it's okay to go fishing or if it's okay to be a hunter. And some of us would go, oh, who could, you, who could ever be a hunter? But, I mean, I lived in Wisconsin for 30 years and I grew up in Texas. There are a lot of people who are hunters and they are the finest people in the finest churches around the country. And hunting is, that's the way they get at a lot of people. And don't be shocked, but there are a lot of people would say, when I go hunting or fishing, that's when I'm meditating. That's when I feel closest to spirit. Because they have a totally different, different take on what they're doing. They're providing, you know, they're hunting, but they are, they are, they feel like they are ethical hunters and they are, uh, eating what they're, hunting and it's hard to argue with somebody who's doing that but it's we are we probably we might be taking the precepts like uh i can't even fish anymore because that just that's me killing that meat i mean the buddha said we don't want to be involved in he didn't say be a vegetarian but he said we don't want to be involved in the killing of that uh animal or the butchering of it. But if you talk to a good hunter or a good fisherman, fisher person, they, they pride themselves on, on being a, uh, you know, if they, if they shoot an animal, they hope they kill it right away. If they don't kill it, they'll track it down to make sure they don't leave it to suffer. And if they're, if they're really good, they'll butcher their own meat because they can do it cleanly and use most of the meat. So even in this country with people that we have total respect for, 
They have different, there are different things going on that we don't even think about, and it's easy to judge. So what I wanted to talk about with the precepts today is those precepts are our guidelines. They make our lives happier. But we, we don't, if we start using them as a way to measure other people or to judge other people, then we're in big trouble. We might as well not have precepts because those precepts are for us. And they're, they're like gifts that we were given from cultures long ago, 2,600 years ago, because the precepts existed in the, with the, in the Vedic teachings and they were pre-Buddhist in India. But the way, the way we use them is to make our lives happier. And they become, like I was saying, if you don't have a sangha, those precepts become, can become ways to uh, be like your own little sangha. You can check yourself. Okay, have I been kinder today than I was yesterday? Have I, am, I, am I trying to find a way to reach out to be kind to people, to animals, to living things? And, and am I being really careful about uh, not taking things from the earth? For me, not judging other people about how they're doing with the precepts. We can go through all those five precepts every day and if you're not coming to a, have a beautiful temple to come to and a lot of classes to go to, those precepts are what you can study because they directly connect us to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path because we can live the Eightfold Path by having the precepts and by being able to study and then having meditation. That's how we live and it all comes from the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha said there is suffering, but there's a cause for suffering. That's our clinging. That's our uh, unwholesome desires, that, that are desires that become attachments that we can't get rid of, the things we cling to. That's what causes our suffering. And so there's a way out of that. So we can, we can end suffering right now, right this minute, and it's just to be willing to let go of the things we're clinging to. And how do we do that? We live the Eightfold Path. So that's right, right uh, intention, right, wi- right wisdom. I'm, get, I'm, not, I'm not getting these first two right. Right, uh, right speech, right action, right mindfulness. mindfulness. Is that what you said? Livelihood, thank you. Uh, and then right mindfulness, right concentration, right wisdom. So the first two I think I got wrong. Right intention and right... Uh, what? Right views, yeah. So we live that path. We live that eightfold path. We just, we're always somewhere working on one of those things. But that's, that's why the precepts, the eightfold path, and the four noble truth, that's the package. And it's not there for us to learn so we can judge other people or say what's wrong with this country is da-da-da-da. It's there so we can have a happy life. And the Buddha knew the only way to be happy was to let go, just to keep letting go. And we can only do that for ourselves. We can't get it, believe me, I'm an expert on this. You cannot make anybody else let go. (laughs) 
You cannot make anybody else stop clinging to things. And I have tried it in so many ways, I can't even talk about it. There are just so many. It's, it was my, has been my entire life. And it, nothing makes you happy until you just start letting go of your own clinging. You will never be happy if you, if you think you have caused somebody else to let go. It doesn't touch you at all, and it doesn't make them happy, and they don't stop clinging. <laughs> so this is it. This is all we can work with. But once we become happy, once we begin letting go of these things we hang on to, once we do that, everything we do, we're, we're making a cleaner choice. We can choose things that we care about, that we want to be involved in. We can choose projects we want to take on, but we're doing it from a clearer place. We're not doing to uh, give our anger a place to go. We're not doing it because we have a grudge against something. We're not doing it because we want to change the way other people think. We're doing it because we find joy in it, if it's helping us help others, and that we find our own sense of uh, self and our own sense of uh, joy in it. We have, to, we have to be thinking about even the projects, the things that we help with where we know people are suffering and we're trying to help alleviate some suffering in the world. We have to do it from a place of joy, not to proselytize, and not to uh, help these poor people who need our help because that's not helping anybody. We have to do it because it, it gives us joy and it makes us happy to help other people. We've got to always see it's about us. Even if we love someone, we have to understand it's about us, making us feel good. So if it's all... The Buddha said everything we need to know is in, our, is in this body. We don't need to go beyond that. And that's, where, that's the only place we need to go to work with the, with the precepts and with the Four Noble Truths and with the Eightfold Path. We clean up our own act, and that'll take us... I mean, we will never, we will never have a moment to spare if we just do that but it will affect every single person you come in contact with. And it will be the only way we can spread the Dhamma. Because, you know, people are watching us. I know at this retreat there was one woman who kept saying, I came to the retreat because I read about Wimala. So I wanted to find out about Buddhism. And it was like by watching this, this nun, by the, what, this Buddhist nun is what is going to tell me about Buddhism. Not in my words. I mean, it was like, she's watching me. She's watching my behavior. I was her first contact. And, that's, and, and even at the end of the week, I realized that's what she meant by she came to the retreat because she wanted to find out more about Buddhism, and there was a Buddhist nun, and that's how she was going to find out about it. It wasn't by anything I said. We were silent most of the time. And that's how people will be about you. I just happen to wear the uniform. <laughs> Which some people think that if you're Buddhist, you have wear robes. There are still people who really are, are, know a lot about religion and spirituality. But, you know, a couple of people asked me, do all Buddhists wear the robes? So, you know, be careful. 
Um, so that's, that's what people are not paying any attention to what we say. They're looking at how we behave and how we deal with things. And that's the biggest thing that we're, that's the biggest thing we're doing in the world. So we have to be aware of that. That's a good thing to remember. You might as well, you might as well wear the robes if, if you tell someone you're Buddhist or you're studying Buddhism or you meditate. So it's about how we live. It's about what they see. So the precepts are joyful, and the precepts are the whole crux of this whole thing, this package. And if you wanted to put like a little thing together, I always envision a little shrine, which to me it might be like a cigar box that you open up, or a little box, shoe box, like they do in you know, elementary school and stuff. The shrine could just be about the Eightfold Path and the, and the Five Precepts and the Four Noble Truths. You could have a little diorama of that. <laughs> I, 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 I was at the Hare Krishna uh, temple in Los Angeles, and they have the most wonderful museum. It's not little, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the Bhagavad Gita in a museum. So they, they're, uh, there are dioramas for every single scene from the Bhagavad Gita. And I got to spend hours there. And so it helped me understand the Bhagavad Gita, which I'm trying to read and, uh, it, and understand the whole essence of some of the teachings. But it was done with dioramas. So you could walk from one that was a dark, dark, uh, almost like a maze, but you would, you would see a light would go on under one diorama. So you'd walk to the front of that and stand there and then, then it would light up gradually. You know, the scene would light up. And some were life-sized, life-sized. Some were a little bit smaller. But it was, they were intricate. And they were of paintings that you've seen, if you've seen any, like, Hindu art or anything with Krishna and Vishnu. And some of them were bigger. One, the last one was like a whole room. And it was just me and one other person doing this. So then they would tell the whole story from the Bhagavad Gita. And it was just so wonderful. But I kept thinking of those little shoe boxes we used to teach kids to make, you know. So here's my four noble truths, and here's the, you know, here's the, here are the five precepts, and here's the eightfold path. I know just how I'd make it. So make that as your little personal shrine, and you're okay. Everything else will just come when you need to have it come to you. So thank you. <laughs>